Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, April 19th of 2022, where two laypersons, a pastor, and an academician gather for about 45 to 50 minutes each week to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, and this Sunday is April 24th. Each Tuesday, we call in from wherever we may be at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time, and for our good friend Charles Willard in Minnesota, that's 5.30 a.m. Our little team working to be faithful to lectionary year C, and that puts us in the Gospel of John on Sunday. We hope this discussion will provide areas of focus and reflection. Here's how it works. We develop perspectives independently after the lead-off person shares some formative questions. And then in this virtual discussion room, we share, encourage, and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Bill Hall, St. Petersburg, Florida. Charles Miller, Maple Grove, Minnesota, 24 degrees, clear. <laughs> Sarah Mickelson in Tampa, Florida, where it's 68 and clear. And I'm Don Upton in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I have no idea what the temperature is outside. It sure looks like a nice spring morning. Welcome, everybody. Our lead-off today is Sarah Mickelson, and before uh, we hand it to her to read the scripture and give us some formative questions, we're asking each other during the weeks, how do you prepare for podcast? What, what resources do you use? What's your approach? And so, Sarah, let's kick, kick off with that. How do you prepare for podcast every week? Well, the first thing I do is I get a saute pan, and I melt some butter. No, teasing. Uh, um, I have to confess, I think uh, we've been doing this for so long that um, I've forgotten how methodical I used to be about this. So usually what I do is I read the scripture first. And in my head, I think about what provokes me about the scripture, what what tugs at my heart. And, and then I dive in to um, an aggregated website that's produced by Jeannie Woodard called textweek.com. And in sh- this, this particular website is called The Text This Week, and it focuses on the lectionary gospel readings as well as the lectionary readings from other um, resources within the scripture. So you get the full gamut of Old Testament, New Testament, prophet, letters, um, all of the lectionary passages together, and she does it by lectionary year, and she also aggregates it by the week, and then you can pick which scripture you need to to dive into, and then she lists a wonderful resource collection of um, what I would consider ancient writings about the scripture modern writings about the scripture, artwork that ties to the scripture, music that ties to the scripture, poetry, sometimes novels and movies, which um, for me it's very helpful because that's kind of how my brain works. And I find it super helpful. Um, When I first endeavored to take a Sunday school class um, with Bill Wallop, who started this lectionary, I, I would say class and now podcast, um, he asked me to substitute for him one Sunday, and I was so overwhelmed um, because I had no. Sunday school class. So, um, 
I think I've been using this website for probably 10 plus years. And it's a great resource. So thank you, Jeannie Woodard, um, for undertaking the aggregation of all this knowledge. That's how I prepare. Thank you. And we'll be asking that of each other for some time because we get the questions uh, each week when we meet folks ask about the podcast. Um, well, let's go ahead and get into today's scripture, Sarah. It's all yours. So we're looking at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. And it is the week of the resurrection. Let me say it that way. And when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed <laughs> are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. And that ends the reading of our scripture. So I have three questions. Um, the first question is, why are we given this story? I'm thinking about twins and the balance and stability that left and right, pairs of things, the value of parallel perspectives, binocular sight. What do you make of the parallel stories offered by John in this particular passage? And Don, we spoke earlier, and um, I know twinning is one of your favorite conversations, so I thought I would um, lob the ball to you and ask for your response first. Okay, thank you. Uh, first, a uh, disclaimer in the use of the word twin or twins or twinning, because humans are attracted to the concepts of twins in more mystical ways, and it doesn't mean our friends who are twins should be saddled with or stereotyped with all that stuff, and I just wanted to put that out there. And this passage may 
simply state that the names and identity were developed just like today, uh, like Sons of Thunder that you see in Scripture. There were twins in the first century just like today, and the author of John may simply be setting the scene in a bit, period. He happened to be a twin, and they called him a twin. The applications of concepts of similarity and sameness, resemblance, are also present in the scriptures and today. So one response is to honor the author and not put too much thinking into this. That, that's different than what I've said in past years on the podcast, but it may just be that's who he's identified as. It gives depth to the character. That's what he's called in the story, in the description. And the followers of Jesus are made up of a pretty wide range of people, surprised is actually folks who are twins who are followers of Jesus. Now, I'll stop there and go into the answer to your question. Is the twin opens the door in literature? They are asked to pay attention. What? We are asked. I wonder what you all were there for. No, I know. So, for uh, a range of reasons, uh, my my choice this year is to affirm the author's delivery of the descriptor twins and line it up with doubt. I think we can look at twins in terms of dealing with doubt. Doubt is in Thomas is my twin, my twin. I'm putting my hand in my breath, my twin. He's our twin in the human condition, the human condition that includes conversation with Christ. Uh, he's also a twin that stereotypes of sameness, twin to twin, um, you can lay on Thomas all the stereotypes of twins, but he's an independent person. And that's enhanced by the fact that we don't know who his twin is. It, you, we say he's a twin, but it, it emphasizes his independence. He's isolated in his own thought. He, he demands proof. And that has nothing to do with his twin. What, what if someone said, I'm surprised you don't think like your brother thinks? And, of course, the answer is, of course he doesn't. But this emphasizes that. He thinks as an independent person. And finally, I know some of my friends in the faith flinch at this, uh, Sarah, but twins like Janus, the god of change, of transitions, of looking towards forward and backwards, is on my mind when I read this. It's a part of what's in the human heart. We want the mechanism that allows us to move through change. So pagan literature and gods and temples are everywhere. At this time, and the Janus God is everywhere in many forms. Why? Because humans need an affirmation of transitions and gateways and beginnings and ends, looking forwards and backwards. War is tied to peace. Doubt is tied to faith. Check it out. Janus twins equals a doorway or a gate. If I showed someone a gateway image in that time, in that first century, it might be if I said, what does this remind, remind you of? They may say not only that it's Janus, they'd say it's the gate. Now, I'm not trying to build on top of pagan mythology here. I'm saying what's in the human heart is the gate and the ability and the importance of dealing with doubt and faith all in one. So thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Ben. Bill, what are your thoughts? Uh, first of all, an observation about this passage, and then I will speak more directly to your question. It's interesting that uh, there are three years in the lectionary cycle, and every week there's a gospel lesson. 
in all three years, A, B, and C, the second Sunday of Easter has this gospel passage. Now, I mention that because I think it gets at your question about the parallels here. Uh, One author uh, says that, um, this is in the Connections Commentary, that perhaps this gospel lesson occurs all three years on the same Sunday because of the inevitable emotional letdown after an experience such as Easter. Um, For example, the attendance the Sunday after Easter in public worship is usually significantly less (laughs) than it was on Easter. Um, Now, that's speculation. Who knows why the uh, lectionary scholars chose to repeat this every three years, but certainly uh, there is a letdown that the the disciples are in fear. They're, they're hiding. Um, And Mark Davis notes for us that, and this gets at somewhat the parallels uh, there. I think there are a number here. One is the fear of the disciples. The Greek word is phobos from which we get our word phobia So we are told that they were behind locked doors for fear, but after Jesus occurred to them, they rejoiced. Uh, Cairo is the Greek word. Uh, I didn't check. That may be related to this Greek word kairos, which means the fullness of time. Um, The disciples had heard Mary's report that she had seen the Lord but their joy was not experienced until the, they themselves had seen Jesus. So I think one of the parallels, Sarah, is Mary saw Jesus, she rejoiced. The ten saw Jesus, they rejoiced. Um, Thomas was not there, and of course Judas wasn't, because his suicide preceded, uh, according to Matthew's gospel, the crucifixion of Jesus. So there were the 11. So um, as it were, Thomas needed his parallel experience. Um, It wasn't enough for him to hear his fellow disciples report. He needed to see Jesus for himself. And then it doesn't say he rejoiced, but he made what one scholar says is the most profound affirmation in all of scripture of Jesus Christ my Lord and my God. Um, So I think the parallel here reminds us that in certain experiences, it's not enough for me to hear what you experience. Let's say uh, you've been to London and you talk about the joys of being there. It will be very different when and if I go there for myself. And I would likely experience London in a somewhat different way. Um, So I think there's that kind of of parallelism. Uh, And, of course, um, the parallelism leads to the disciples moving from fear to joy to being sent back out into a risky world. And then, again, quoting from the uh, connections, one of the scholars says, the good news of this text is that human weakness and failure do not keep Christ from being present in power and grace. 
darkness, alienation, even locked doors do not prevent Jesus from suddenly appearing among the disciples. Um, Jesus appeared where he needed to. First to a lone individual, according to John, to Mary, and then to the ten, and then to um, Thomas. And I'll end with this. Uh, This isn't directly responsive to your question. Whenever I read this, and then the later story at the seashore where Peter experiences forgiveness, there is for me a sadness that Judas chose not to be open to the possibility of forgiveness. He precluded that by taking his own life. And we know, had Judas still been there, Jesus would have forgiven him as he did all of the disciples. Thank you. Charles, what do you make of these parallel stories and perspectives and things? Do you have anything to add? I I have a difficult time in, 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 in understanding how we all come to deal with the passages that we have here in, in the text. Uh, we, we deal with them as I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to think how to, how to say this. We deal with them in the way that we get them even though we don't recognize how how we get them and the context in which we get them and the structure in which we receive them is is highly dependent upon what we understand then they are and how they're communicating with us. Um, we're dealing with the Gospel of John as though it were a, 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 a fresh text, as it were. Whereas the Gospel of John, in fact, all the Gospels, were written years after the events that they that they are are talking about, and the most the most the, the freshest, the closest texts to what we're talking about are the letters of Paul, which were written directly following within a matter of years the events that they are dealing with. In this case, John is producing a text for us to understand that was written decades after it was actually the events that it claims to provide occurred. And I think that that has to affect how we judge the validity and the power and the insight that we are receiving from John. But we don't do that. We don't we don't think about that at the time that we are that we are actually reading it. Uh, I think that the thing that I like is that it concludes in the thirty first verse. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Not that you already believe for the the decades that have interceded this. John doesn't talk about that. He draws as though it's right now, yesterday. This is what happened, and this is what I'm now writing about. But that's not the way it was at all. But he does conclude 
at the end that even even Thomas, the twin, um, came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It could happen. And so the believing, so you may have life in his name. And in fact, it's available to all who want to come, all who are there. It's, 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 not, it's not something you know, that is, you know, Thomas didn't lose out because he didn't believe the right way. He won. Just like the others who had believed before that, they won. And that that's, I like that. I like that it concludes that way. Me too. It, it struck me when I was reading this and thinking about it last week um, that oftentimes there are moments when I'm like the disciples the first week and I get the information and it just makes perfect sense to me and I feel like it's made its nest and it's it's staying with me and it's it, it's stuck in my head and I believe. And then there are other moments when I'm more like Thomas. And I go, I just don't get it. I can't believe. I can't I can't wrap my head around that. It's just bigger than my mind can comprehend. And so it struck me that that being a twin, being one of two, provides a benefit that we don't get when we only look at something with one eye. So I thought about this as parallel stories that give us two different perspectives. Both are valid. Both are pathways. Both are essential. It's kind of like having two eyes and having only one of them work. You lose your depth perception and you lose the um, your peripheral vision when you only have one working eye. But when you have two working eyes, that see slightly different things. Your brain does this wonderful thing that gives you depth perception and it gives you peripheral vision. And the beauty of that means that you need both. You need both to really have a full picture. And so for me, it it delivered this notion to me that both are valid, both are appropriate. There are going to be moments when I arrive at the conclusion without the proof. And there are going to be moments when I need the proof to understand. And and this is such a gift for those of us. You know, a lot of people say, I didn't grow up in the church and I didn't have this moment um, of Saul to Paul where I got knocked off a horse and made blind. I didn't have that miracle experience. So I don't think I'm a valid Christian. I don't think what I believe has really been tested. And then I hear from other people who, who've taken a very different life path, who are coming in from a recovery perspective that feel like they don't have the right to be in church because they didn't come from that background. And I have to go, no. I think both. There's room and, and necessarily a need for both. And I think that that's what this particular passage brings to us is this idea that no matter how you arrive, as you come to believe, you have arrived. And both are valid. And both are essential and necessary because you're going to need the wisdom that comes from both perspectives. The belief without proof and the belief with proof. 
I think it gives me great comfort that both are within reach to me. So here's my question number two. In verses 22 and 23, John gives us the giving of the Holy Spirit in his gospel. And it made me think about forgiveness and the gifts that we bear to each other and for each other. And I was reminded uh, about Stan Lee's Spider-Man. And in that movie and in that comic book, there's a, a theme that's repeated that says, with great power comes great responsibility. How do you see that expressed in this story? Bill, do you have any thoughts about that? <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, just to remind us, the verse says, when Jesus had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. First of all, <clears throat> an observation about forgiveness, Sarah, and then I will seek to speak directly to your question. Uh, a scholar, David Augsburger, in 1981, published a book entitled Caring Enough to Forgive, Caring Enough Not to Forgive. I discovered that book, used it in sermons, and we had some groups on it. Uh, I, I can't do it justice in a, a moment, but basically one of the important takeaways that's suggested by that challenging title, uh, To Forgive and Not to Forgive, he challenges any kind of uh, shallow, um, instantaneous belief that forgiveness just happens in a snap and that we can forgive and forget all hurts. Instead, uh, he forgiveness is a journey, especially for deep hurts. And what he says is the what he gets that by the caring enough not to forgive is to forgive doesn't mean you have to deny the hurt that is there, and it doesn't mean you have to trust the person. Let's say, for example. <clears throat> You had borrowed $5,000 from me, <clears throat> promising to give it back. You never did. And then um, you came back to me and, and wanted to borrow another 5000 But in the meantime, your behavior had not demonstrably changed. You were still reckless with money, and I refused to give it. And you say to me, you claim to be a Christian. You haven't forgiven me. Yes, I did forgive you. I forgave that first money, but I'm not going to loan you more. So I don't. I I find it important because I think there is sometimes a naivete about forgiveness. It is not easy, and Jesus simply says you can forgive or retain that you have that power, as you say. With great power comes great responsibility. It reminds me of the twelve steps. Uh, there are steps in there where you are asked to admit at least to one other human being the exact nature of the wrong and, if possible, seek to make restitution uh, to rebuild uh, that uh, trust that you shattered by whatever you did. <clears throat> it at least reminds me, Sarah, <clears throat> that I have the ability to to let go of an anger or a hurt 
or I have the power to retain it. Uh, one of the Greek verbs for forgiveness literally means the ability to grasp something and choose to release it. So I think uh, I find that image of forgiveness as releasing uh, as very powerful. And uh, one proverb I've heard, I don't know who first originated it, if you cannot forgive someone else for that person's sake, at least forgive them for your sake. Uh, You don't have to be a pastor to know how toxic it is to a human being to hold on to resentment and anger and hatred and, and refuse to forgive. And I'm reminded of Martin Luther King Jr.'s capacity to love white people and to want their release from the prison of of segregation and racial prejudice. So in some ways it's mysterious to me because we don't believe in work salvation. We don't believe that I control whether or not God forgives you, but I certainly control whether or not I forgive you. And with that, I'll pass the baton back to you, Sarah. Carol, what are your thoughts about this? Excuse me, I've got to deal with something else right now. Go ahead. Good thing. Um, Don, what do you think? I have a dark view of your question based on the history of the church. With great power comes great responsibility. It has a bad ending for a lot of people when it comes to the church. And in responsibility to save or to wage war or to excommunicate or imprison or to persecute or to segregate, to outcast, that's part of the church's history. Show vengeance sometimes even. So it's less to seek justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God, more to enforce, and that's the dangers that are out there. And I wanted to hold that up because it's in such contradiction to what's being wrapped up in the Gospel of John. If, if Thomas, my twin, my twin Thomas, does not have standing doubt and seek and declare my Lord and my God, then we're in big trouble. And so is the world. What's happened up to this point is a ministry of individuality, seeking, questioning, of doubt. There's a gate. The people are walking in from many pastures and many worlds and many cities and many communities. And no one is starting at the same point. And I think your question, in my heart, raises up the contradiction of what responsibility or great responsibility is interpreted by people who believe they have the answer. And it usually has a bad outcome. So it's uh, the Gospel of John especially important when considering that, I think, because of the love and the domesticity and the breaking of bread and the care and the personal care that each person shows to each other in order to, to be unified. Thanks, Sarah. That's kind of where I went to, that the relationship is the most important thing. And if you allow something to separate you, the regaining of that relationship is the tricky wicket. Um, And how do we restore relationship with each other? And, And nothing happens if you're out of relationship. That's part of the, the problem. Um, 
it's only within the relationship does forgiveness, does the the ability to um, resolve occur. So um, I think the, that we're we're requested to stand in loving kindness with each other. And it made me think of our study of the the book of Ruth and the conversations we had about that, um, which I found very helpful. Uh, I, I think that uh, the way that Thomas is responded to is a fine example. He had to come to the room. That was his part of the commitment. And once he got there, how he was responded to by Christ was important. Um, so I think that for me, that's the first step. Um, my third question has to do with breathing. Jesus breathed on them. According to the American Lung Association, a person takes roughly 20,000 breaths per day. That's 7.5 million breaths a year. We breathe sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously. This offers each of us 20,000 opportunities each day to receive the Holy Spirit. How does that idea color, impact, shape, transform your thinking about being redeemed and the spirit at work and the gift of Emmanuel, which is God with us. Charles, do you have any thoughts? It's a, it's a strange thing. I, I keep going back to Fort Thomas and wondering why he set up these mechanisms to have to, you know, have it done that way, uh, and then and then to once the the door opened slightly, he was prepared to rush in without waiting for anything else to happen. Um, and the gospel itself concludes with the promise that how do you put? Uh, But these are written so that you and the subject of who that you is, it means everybody, I'm assuming, you may come to believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, and through believing you may have life in his name. That's what we all want, I think. And that's what Jesus is prepared to offer and through John in, uh, in this gospel. The, the wonderfully nice way that you put it about, about breath That wasn't one of the conditions that that uh, that Thomas put on what he had to, to be able to experience, um, and yet it's a very nice way that you described it. Thank you, Bill. What are your thoughts? Obviously, a very powerful reminder of our humanity. We have to breathe to live. Uh, and thank you for those statistics. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. And I'm engaged in various ways, as many of us do, in very medita- various meditative practices, many of which have to do with our breathing, uh, inviting us to breathe deeply and to be mindful 
of, of that um, and that sometimes breathing slowly and deeply can help calm us. Uh, so it's such a powerful imagery. And, of course, we know, many scholars note this, it takes us back to the creation story in Genesis 2. Uh, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Very, very powerful. Um, and, of course, the Holy Spirit elsewhere is likened to wind that blows where it wills. You hear the sound of it, but you know where, from where it came or, or where it goes. I love that. That, to me, is a whole rich imagery. Not just breathing, but the very existence of air and wind. Um, and... I believe it, it was the presence of Jesus, of course, but the Holy Spirit is what enabled the rest of the story to occur. These disciples who were literally locked in fear, literally and figuratively paralyzed by fear, were able to unlock the door and to follow the later Great Commission, begin in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, to face even for some of them, their own eventual suffering and death because of their sharing the gospel. And in the same way, it, it comforts me to know that the Holy Spirit empowers us today. We sought for wisdom during the, the pandemic, how to manage it. Now, there was a lot of conflict, but in the retirement community, which I live and at Palmasia Preston Church, I perceive a great wisdom went into managing how we worked our way through that. And when we had restrictions, when we began to release them, I believe God's spirit is as available as every breath that we take. And I looked back at 2019 when we went over this passage, and my friend Sarah Mickelson said, this is the Pentecost in the book of John. <laughs> Uh, that that's that's true. And breathing back to my favorite Greek verb for forgiveness is releasing. Breathing is taking in and releasing. You have to do both. <clears throat> and I love it that it comes naturally for us. Uh, it it's a very and it reminds us that what sustains life comes from outside of ourselves and is available to all. Um, a rich imagery. Uh, thank you for the question, Sarah. Don, what about you? I was How on the same track. Uh, uh, Bill on this one. Uh, starting with the end of John, or near the end of John, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. That's the last breath. Breathe no more. End of story. And in the human history, that's it. There's a last breath. And then there were those who considered the ruah, the breath of God, the spirit of the wind that Bill's talking about. But there's no um, no twin here to demonstrate a gateway, or at least not for a few days after Jesus is gone. There's no twin. There's no twin to raise the question of proof. For a few days, uh, 
And I think this is uh, probably more of a shock than I appreciate. More of a shock at that time. And and uh, this, and that, what I mean by that is the the breath of God, the spirit of God would be uh, that it would be pressed out by a diaphragm in the human body. Uh, that shatters the scripture. I think we have the eternal ruah, eternal, timeless wind. And I think it shatters the scripture because at least how some of you interpret it, this is personal. It's connected to the body, like Bill's talking about. It's individual. It's almost less timeless. I think it could be a shock to the system because how can you connect it to a human that has a last breath when eternal is eternal is eternal? How do those go together? And I think that's the, the most shocking strangeness of the Christ, that you would put the ruah together with the diaphragm of this person who came to the earth as both man and God. That's what I've been thinking about, sir. I was reminded of Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10, the Valley of the Dry Bones, um, when prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord said to these bones, I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. And for me, that's really powerful because the promise of Emmanuel is that God is with us no matter what. And this idea that God can be in the form of breath gives me an opportunity every time I take a breath to consider the actions of God and consider the purposes of God and not my own. I think that's the best moment in, in, in the actions that I take and the way that I move forward is I'm given that opportunity to consider that profoundly each time I breathe. What I say is based on that breath. How I sing is based on that breath. The way my brain works is based on that breath. And so it's this foundational nugget that just says nothing occurs unless I'm breathing. Nothing occurs unless I'm breathing. And for me, that's that's profound. I think that, that we all have that opportunity 20,000 times a day, sometimes 22,000 times a day the American Lung Association says. But um, I'm thinking about what a gift that is. That's all I got. I'm sitting here thinking about our conversation so far, and it's been about breath, and we've been in the midst of a pandemic for a couple of years now, in which that has suddenly gotten changed. And I'm amazed that I'm maybe the only one that's because I mean, the only one that's dumb. But to think about how our experience of breathing has been radicalized, dramatically radicalized, turned upside down in the last in the last two years, and then now instead of breathing out as, as something that is, is, is to be shared and greeted joyfully, breathing among others is something that's to be carefully guarded and limited and restricted so that 
You can't, in this building, for example, you don't walk down the hall without having a mask on. You just don't do that. And I understand in some places, some other communities, it's that, you know, wearing masks is, is, uh, is not, not, not accepted, that it's not done. But it's not, it's not because of some theological understanding that has to do with that. It's because people's, people's own sense of what is my decision that I can make and, you know, you don't matter. And I, it's, it's, um, I just express my own surprise at, at how the conversation has sort of rolled along like that without thinking about and about looking out and seeing the consequences of that kind of reception, that kind of expectation, that kind of understanding of breath has changed dramatically on a worldwide basis, not just believers. Yeah. Well, believers, but believers in different things in this case. I didn't mean to stop the conversation. I'm sorry. It was great. And, and for those listening in on the podcast, Charles, uh, yes. wearing him <laughs> for much of his uh, discussion to illustrate a point. And thank you for that, Charles. Folks, I think we're all done here. Just looking for a few nods. Good. Well, for those listening in, Palmasia Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose Street. That's in Tampa, Florida. And uh, for more information, you can go to palmasia.org. P A L M A C E I A.org. We always uh, refer that to you because there are other discussions about scripture, differences of opinion, great sermons, outstanding music, prayer, reflection, and the opportunity to take communion. So we commend that to you, and you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.